Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 7th, 2019, and my guest is writer-photographer, former Wall Street trader, and author Chris Arnotti. Chris was a guest on Econ Talk in October of 2016, talking about the Mexican financial crisis. Today we're talking about his new book, Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. Chris, welcome back to Econ Talk. Uh, thank you for having me. I want to let parents listening with children know that this episode will almost certainly touch on a number of adult themes, so you may want to screen it before listening with your children. Chris, you've written a very powerful book that I think has a chance to spark a national conversation about the people who are not part of the progress that we've seen in America over the last few decades, people who sometimes are described as left behind. You describe them as people in the back row. How did you come to the experiences that you chronicle in the book? Um. Kind of in a backhanded way. I mean, I, I didn't really intend this to ever be a book. Um, didn't ever really intend this to be more than just kind of, I guess, a guy with a camera kind of exploring the neighborhoods he was told not to go to. Um, as, as you mentioned, and as we spoke about in the last podcast, I was a Wall Street trader for 20 years. Um, and before that, I had a PhD in physics and come to the industry that way. Um, and one of the things I did was to take long walks, often 20 miles walks, and just explore the neighborhoods of New York. Um, and those walks started a shift following the financial crisis when I kind of realized that my industry and myself and a lot of people like me had really messed up and screwed up. And to re- reevaluate kind of how I saw things and how I thought about things and how I learned things in particular – this kind of sitting behind a wall of computers, kind of making decisions based on flashing numbers and PowerPoint presentations and Excel spreadsheets was missing you know, a voice and missing the actual people, you know, we were making decisions about. So I went, you know, I, I kind of said, you know, to myself, I've been doing this quantitative database approach to look to, to life so long. Let, let me just talk to people. And those walks provided me that opportunity because when you have a camera, um, people open up. And so those walks evolved into kind of me kind of just going on a listening tour, I guess. Um, And uh, one of those walks led me to uh, the Bronx, which led me to the South Bronx, a neighborhood in the South Bronx I had been told not to go to because the data said – it had all sorts of problems. And uh, so when I walked into that neighborhood, I saw what the data didn't show, which was a thriving community with um, a lot of a lot of beauty. Um, uh, there was a lot of frustration there, but the people were doing their best to make it a functional neighborhood. These were – but a lot of the people you met there were people that those of us who have not been to that, that neighborhood would – not described necessarily as as successful. They're drug addicts, drug users, prostitutes, um, a lot of homeless people, correct? That's correct. That wasn't my initial focus, but that's what my focus became. Um, 
as uh, I spent more time there and I realized that not only was this neighborhood stigmatized um, unfairly in my mind, um, but within that neighborhood was another community that was stigmatized even more, and that was uh, the those who were suffering from addiction or sex workers or um, those who were living on the streets. Um, those all three go basically hand in hand. Um, and uh, so I shifted my focus more towards that. Um, initially out of kind of curiosity, and um, but then it became somewhat political, I would say, in the sense that I, what I was seeing amongst this population and, and was like what I was seeing in this neighborhood was people who were stigmatized, what I thought unfairly. And the kind of stereotypes that we were using to stigmatize them were, were just that, stereotypes that were wrong. What drew you to that, to that neighborhood, do you think? Um, part of it is that, I mean, there's some simple things. One is, it's you know, it's really like a small town. I think a lot of big cities are really just collections of small towns that adjoin against each other. Um, and this one in particular um, is Hunts Point. Um, because of the geographical location, it's basically in a walled community. It's isolated on three sides by it's like it's like a tongue tongue of land that juts out into the East River, um, right across from LaGuardia, um, with with Rikers in between. Um, it's a tongue of land that sticks out, and so on three sides it's surrounded by water, and on the fourth side where it attaches to the Bronx, there is a pretty engineered road, elevated road, the Bruckner, which I believe is six lanes. And it's just brutal, and it effectively cuts the neighborhood off from the rest of the Bronx. So in in that sense, it's a very knowable place. It's 35,000 residents. You know, I like to say that New York City puts whatever it doesn't want there. It puts, puts, you know, junkyards and and industrial plants and and um, other things that it doesn't particularly want. So the neighborhood has a lot, lot of lot going against it in that sense. But it's you know it's also thirty five thousand people who are um, who make it a real community, and that's the, that community, the knowability, the community, and then also just as a photographer, the light. It's it's south facing, so it gets good light, which makes for strong photos. So you started going down there occasionally, and then you started going down there. Every day, all the time, pretty much, correct? Correct. Um, it, it ended up being basically three years of being there. Um, seven hours a day, three hours a day, eight hours a day, four, depending on the situation. Um, and that required me basically quitting my job at some point, or they quit me. So when I when the buyout opportunity came, I accepted it. And again, I wasn't really clear what I was going to focus full time on this. I still was thinking about maybe trying to find another job in a hedge fund or something, but it just it just kind of took over my life, and I felt more and more distance from the from what I had been doing, and um, so so I shifted into this um, this process of I guess documenting what I saw. Although it became more than that, it became getting involved in some of the lives of some of the people, trying to help them, taking the detox, visiting in Rikers, taking them to the hospital, things like that. You talk about um, letting them use your cell phone, your computer. Uh, 
this, this is a personal question. If you don't want to answer, we'll, I'll edit it out. But to tell your friends and family you were doing this every day? And if yeah. so, what, yeah. what, what did they, they must have been uh, in some dimension taken aback or surprised. When I describe the book to people, some people look at me puzzled, like, why would he do that? You must have gotten that reaction. Or they must have been afraid for you. And I assumed there were times you were afraid. There wasn't many times I was afraid, to be honest. I think one of the misconceptions is, is about the danger in these neighborhoods. Um, but, you know, there were people who thought maybe I was off my rocker. Um, but I was supported by my family who, you know, I I wasn't a traditional Wall Street trader. I came from an academic background. Um, and my, my parents were... Um, were academics. So I think in some senses, I think I'm the only person from my college to have ever gone, ever gone to Wall Street, which was a very leftist college. So I think in some senses, you know, people who knew me all my life would say that me being on Wall Street was more of the um, anomaly. So after you did this for three years uh, in the Bronx, you decided you wanted to look at a wider swath of people struggling and the communities that you were interested in. So tell tell me what you did uh, driving across America uh, to continue this odyssey. Yeah, I basically, you know, in my, to, put, to put my old mathematics hats on, I wanted to see if what I learned in, in Hunts Point in the Bronx, South Bronx, was translationally invariant. Was it true? <laughs> was it true elsewhere? Um, so I started finding neighborhoods that, you know, were stigmatized or forgotten or left behind, whatever whatever term you want to use they're all they all are unfortunately demeaning that's the problem with these with these with these terms is that they quickly become demeaning um so i found places you know across the country that i thought kind of represented a fair that kind of would test my theories um you know that were both that were different from hunts point but similar in some ways and to see how how stuff held up um, so I just I, I, I think I ended up doing two years on the road. I mean, I, I came back a lot. I spent a lot of time back at home, but I go on these trips of maybe two weeks, three weeks, a week, um, six weeks, two months, um, depending on where my kind of destination was and just go to go to communities that, you know, where a lot of people live, but we rarely hear from um, and also and generally have a have a bad, a bad um, reputation. But the other part that. I think these areas have in common is there's not a lot of employment. There's not a lot of whatever employment was there has gone. Factories have closed. So you're looking at uh, places that used to be somewhat thriving or thriving and are now desperately uh, poor in the financial monetary sense. And um, the people generally are not working in any a lot of the people are not working in traditional nine to five jobs. Would that be an accurate way to summarize the the sort of economic environment, the climate that they were that they were in? Right. Um, I think, but in, in some of the neighborhoods were though were not far from successful neighborhoods. So you, you know, South Bronx is you know very close to Wall Street, <laughs> very close to the Upper West Side. So it wasn't just economic. I think. You know, there were small, there were neighborhoods within a larger economic, uh, larger community that was doing well, but had been stigmatized in, in many cases by racism. But yes, I think the the majority of them were places that had had lost um, 
jobs. Um, or I, I think it almost became um, – didn't weren't close to an elite educational institution. I think that almost became the more defining feature of them. Um, you know, they, they weren't attached um, either in employment or reputation to a, uh, to a high-end college. You say they were stigmatized. And well, I hope come back and talk about that. But I, there, there's some objective aspects of these communities that are not related to stigma. There's often boarded up buildings. There are, uh, when I say not related to stigma, that meaning is it not? There's some visible things that are not going well in these neighborhoods: drug use, um, boarded up buildings, lack of steady work for most of the people, um, often. Uh, people struggling in, in, in very ennobling, you know, noble is not the right word. I don't know what, but there's a, there's a, there's a courage about some of the, the people you chronicle that's very apparent, but these are neighborhoods that are not on the surface doing well, at least. That's correct. I mean, you, you know, I almost feel like I used to say you could put a blindfold on me and drop me someplace in the United States and I can tell you within three minutes what type of, you know, where, if it's one of those neighborhoods, um, I could tell you maybe in one minute, you can put me in the, you know, you can put me in the, the, the grocery store in the aisle. And I can tell you pretty quickly. Um, and it's not by looking at the people, it's by the products that are being sold by the, how fresh the vegetables are. It's by, um, you know, how, how much pedestrian, how much, um, how much engineering traffic engineering is there, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's these places don't have a lot of work put into them, um, and um, a lot has falling apart, um, or the work that's been put into them is kind of decaying and 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 just it's just in wasn't the right fit. So the, yeah, you can tell immediately, you know, very quickly. And, you're, and again, not looking at the people at all. But your book has dozens of color photographs. It's a it's a strange book in the sense that it's in many ways it's a portrait of, I think. People living some subset of your the people you talk to are I would say in living a, a life of desperation, um, but it's also kind of a coffee table book. It's 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 a pretty book, but it's uh, and it's very powerful. It's um, in many ways I guess a better way to you know desperation is related to I guess at the root of it to despair. There's a lot of despair in the book, and yet there's also a lot of uh, dignity and lack of dignity. It's a it's a powerful book. Um, Let's talk about the role McDonald's plays in these communities and and how you came to see that and the time you spent there and what that that's like. Right, I um, I ended up spending a lot of time and a lot of the book is focused on McDonald's, um, because that's where I in, in these neighborhoods that was one of the few institutions that, for lack of the better word, worked a place where you know you could go into one of these neighborhoods. And perhaps on a Wednesday night, the sole thing that was kind of open and and, and fully knowable and safe and and functional was was McDonald's, and the community used it as almost their town center. Um, it's where people got together to meet. It's where um, you know if people play bingo, people play chess, people play checkers, people play bingo. You know, chess clubs meet there, and the thing was. Um, when, when 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 my focus was primarily on homeless and addicted, that, that's also why 
that's also who uses McDonald's. I kind of realized that in the South Bronx where certainly McDonald's is central to the life of somebody who's on the streets. It's a place where they can go in and just escape the streets for a few hours and the elements of the streets and clean up in the bathroom, maybe shoot up in the bathroom. Um, it's warm. But, yeah, but also, you know, free Wi-Fi, um, charge your phone. But also the big big thing I feel the more important thing was it's almost a no-judgment zone. They can sit there and be left alone or, or interact with people on, on the terms of polite, you know, I call it polite society, normal society, and not be stared at, you know. Uh, one of the things that frustrates me is, is as much as I love academics, I got a PhD, but if, if a homeless person or an addict goes onto a college campus, they're going to have the police called on them. <laughs> if they walk into McDonald's, they'll, they'll, they're, they're able to sit there, you know, for a few hours. I could um, imagine it would go the other way, but it doesn't. Right. And so, you know, there's, it's, it's just this place that becomes, I basically saw McDonald's in a very different light. Um, um, you know, as of, I am on the left, and so I, I, I am I am frustrated with McDonald's on many levels. But the reality for the working class and the very poor is that McDonald's is essential. It's it's cheap food, and I don't mean cheap. I mean it's inexpensive food that's pretty good. And you know, so it's if you're on a tight budget and you don't have much money and you don't have much time, McDonald's is essential. Um, but it's more than that. It's the community that evolves there. And I think it's just really important to realize, you know, what, what, what I kind of started learning was, you know, one of these things you learn when you talk to people and visualize and get away from data is that how important people, people need a community. They need it so much that they form it in an institution that's designed to be entirely transactional, you know, like that's how much they want it. They want, they want community that much. Um, and social and social and socializing, and so the social activity of McDonald's really struck me, and it became kind of, in many ways, a, a light that went off in my head and said, "I've been thinking about things so wrong." Before we get into some of the other ideas and, and impressions that you've gathered from that these experiences, give us a little bit of the flavor of how you would talk to people on the street. Uh, you're walking around. You're a white guy, often in a black neighborhood, or uh, uh, non-white neighborhood. You've got a camera. Um, you're you stick out. <laughs> um, how did you get people to open up to you? Just, I mean, literally. What did you say to them? What did they say to you? How did you answer their questions? You, you give some examples in the book, so share those, please. In general, my my, my overall approach is what I, I, I tell this to people is, and I, I genu- I really believe this. This isn't a gimmick. It's just have no fear. Um, you know, don't be reckless, but I, the, the, the rule I always use is, you know, um, be confident without being arrogant. Um, and also be there for the right reasons. If you, if you are there with good intentions and you, and you show that you trust people and I do, um, then I find that that's reciprocated, that people trust you. Um, you know, the other thing is, is one of the things, my, one of my biggest frustrations is, People are scared of these neighborhoods, and there's really not a good reason to be scared of them. I mean, I'll put my old math hat on again and say, like, you know, if, if a neighborhood is bad, so supposedly crime-ridden, you know, 
in a good neighborhood, let's say 99% of the people are playing by the rules or not criminals. In a bad neighborhood, it's 94% of the people, 93. The, the point is, is yeah. the overwhelming bulk of people are still well-intended people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, focus on those 94, 95%. Um, people, people are tired of being stigmatized in these neighborhoods. So if you come in with good intentions, it, people, people, people pick that up. Um, in terms of what, I, how I approached, it was just generally walking around, and you know, again, because and so much of the book takes place in minority neighborhoods, and I'm, I'm very white. You know, people would often approach me and just out of curiosity, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and so that would start a dialogue. Um, and you know, I, I, one of the things I, uh, I would go wherever anybody asked me to go. Um, I think a lot of people might have think that was naive of me, you know, but I remember, you know, one case where I was in a neighborhood in the entirely, probably one of the most high quote crime rated neighborhoods in, in New York City. And a gentleman who was clearly on drugs was really excited to see my camera and he, wa- he wanted me to come with him to go into an abandoned building that we had to climb basically a few rickety ladders that he constructed so he could live on the top floor. He said he wanted to show me something and, you know, it was six at night and the light was dimming and, you know, a lot of things told me I probably shouldn't go, but I did. And what he had showed me was he had, he was a painter and he had done a painting. He wanted to show me the painting, Mm. you know? And so there were a lot of moments like that where I trusted people. Um, Now there's a big difference here. I'm a male. I, I think if females would have a much different circumstance and I'm, and I recognize that I don't want to sound um, naive about that. But, um, you know, another thing I would do is if, if I saw that somebody wasn't trusting me, let's say I meet a group of people in the McDonald's who, you know, are used to being seen as um, criminals um, or are homeless and are used to being kind of, stereotyped, what I'll do is I'll hand them my camera and say, oh, excuse me, I have to go back to my um, car to get something. Will you watch my camera? Um, And leave for five minutes and come back with having left them my camera. The the implicit message is I I, explicit is I trust you. And every time it came back, the camera was there. Um, You know, so it was my my way of saying like here's a three thousand dollar object here's three thousand uh, dollars I'm gonna go watch it for me um, so you know I think um, I just feel very it gets me frustrated when there was a time when I was in Milwaukee and I had been there it was the second week of being there and I had spent all my time in a very traditional um, black neighborhood north north side um, and one of the things that's really wonderful about Milwaukee. The black community in Milwaukee is it's it's, it's directly from Mississippi um, because almost everybody came in the 40s and 50s and they came from the same part of Mississippi. So it's this really it's like this small southern town that's mixed with a northern town, and so they have um, a lot of bars. Unlike in a lot of other poor neighborhoods, uh, black community, you know, there's there's bars that it's kind of the Wisconsin bar culture mixed with a uh, Mississippi, and so. I was saying to some acquaintances I knew in Mississippi who are on the political left like me and are white, you know, I, I don't drink anymore, but I still go to the bars to have like a soda or a Pepsi just to talk to people. And I said, you know, hey, if you guys want to go out tonight, I'm going to the, I think it was a catfish lounge. And they're like, uh, I don't know, man, I think you'll get stabbed there. 
And I was like, you know, <laughs> I walked in and I've, no one ever stabbed me. No one even thought about it. You know, I got some odd looks initially when a white guy walks into all black catfish bar. But by the end of the night, everybody was opening up and talking to me. And, you know, they were just happy to have someone come in and not be worried about getting stabbed. Um, so I think you just got to be you got to be a little more open minded about about reaching out to other people. Through this experience, um, well, actually, let's let's start with. The, let me ask you about the metaphor that you use of the front row and the back row, and your emphasis on credentials. Um, one way you put it is that you understood from a young age that if you went off to college and did the right thing, you'd escape your small town that you grew up in in Florida. Uh, certainly, in my circles, everyone is deeply overly focused on their children getting into the best schools and and see that somewhat correctly, maybe not, but somewhat correctly is the road to the financial well-being. And uh, the populations you're interacting with in this book, uh, they don't have good access to that credential machine. If they get access to it, they don't know the rules of the game, so they struggle to thrive in it. Uh, Talk about that culture that we live in, you and I live in, and they don't. Right. I, I kind of use the metaphor of the back row and the front row. Um, I think we've built this kind of as our as our we can shift talk about it later, but as our economy has shifted into kind of a more focused post industrial kind of knowledge based economy, yep. the 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 access to that is along this very narrow path that weaves through these certain institutions and the gain from that is huge. The difference between, you know, the gap between getting an education and not is growing. Um, but my biggest frustration is not only that, that's bad. I think we should have kind of different ideas about success instead of it's just one institutions. But I think a lot of people don't understand how, how narrow that path is and how you have to really start at an early age and do all the right things. I say, I liken it to like an escalator that goes up really, really fast. And if you don't get on, you kind of fall behind or you get flung off. Um, you know, part of it's just that narrow path requires you to know things and to be aware of it. And a lot of people aren't aware of it. They don't know anything about it. They don't know the availability. They don't know all the, all the, all the unwritten rules. Um, the other thing is I don't think a lot of people necessarily want that. You know, it's just not who they are. It's not it's not their thing, you know. And one of the things I think about a lot and I is is the stories of kids kids, teenagers or young adults in my book who who couldn't go away to the lead, lead institutions even if they even if they could cobble together the credentials by high school, you know, the resume by high school to do that because of family obligations. You know, there's the young woman in East LA who needs to stay in East LA um, and go to the local community college um, instead of uh, a, a more credentialed school because she's her mom's translator. You know, she, her mom's Mexican American first first generation. The, and like in many families like that, the, the oldest child, in this case, the daughter, is the one who kind of deals with both languages. Um, or the young boy, African-American boy in, in Reno, 
Nevada who couldn't leave because his mom is dependent on him, on him for her sobriety. You know, she needs the stability of him. She's now, you know, like five years, she's been sober for five years. And so him and his brother need, feel they need to stay to be there with her and they want to be there with her. So I think, you know, what we ask of people to succeed requires a lot more support than, than we recognize, a lot more information than we recognize a lot more understanding of rules that aren't written than we recognize, but it also requires wanting this concept, this very, very, this very narrowly defined concept of how to live and what's, what's important. You know, I, I say within the African American community, the term, you know, acting white captures some of that, but I think the broader term is acting front row. You have to, you have to behave and think in a certain way to succeed through these institutions. And that's not for everybody. Let's talk about the options available to some of these folks. And of course, you're getting a very, quote, biased sample. It's not, um, that doesn't mean it's irrelevant. It just, you're not seeing the people who chose to leave, but the ones who stay, either because they don't want to leave, because they like some aspect of this life, or they can't, uh, they can't imagine or know where that path is that could take them out. One of the issues we talk about a lot on the program is the idea that it's gotten harder to leave in America because the way we've zoned and regulated land use in American cities has driven up rents quite a bit. So a person from rural Ohio, West Virginia, California, you were in Bakersfield. If you want to move to where there's more opportunity, it's a lot more expensive to get there and stay there. Um but you point out, and I think this is hard for us to imagine who are in the front row and had a certain life experience, a lot of the folks that you talk to, they don't want to leave. They're happy where they are. They can't imagine leaving. And they're living in places that, that people in the front row would struggle to find uh, bearable, but they're happy in an emotional sense. They may have some material struggles but they don't feel they could live anywhere else. Right. I think it gets to a larger point that the thing we, we in the front row really only value things we can measure. I, I call them kind of economic metrics, you know, things that, so you can't really put the value on the emotional attachment to place. And so we tend to dismiss it or ignore it or belittle it. When in fact, it's one of the few things we gift people. It doesn't require credentials to have that. It just requires being born there. And so, you know, all those what I call non-credentialed forms of meaning, things that are just kind of no barriers to entry, like place, other, other than what is what comes from birth, like place, um, like family, like faith. We tend to dismiss, uh, I think not necessarily just because we don't believe them, but because we can't measure them, we can't think, we can't really put our hands in grasp. Like, you know, what's the importance of knowing that your, your family has been here three generations and then they've all looked at the same hills and they've all walked up the same paths. And, you know, I think there's a lot of value in that. And a lot of people appreciate that and get a lot out of that. Um, but I think we tend to ignore it, ignore that value um, simply because we can't, we don't know how to think about it. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the book. Which you write, um, 
I was part of a, gro- a global group of lawyers, bankers, business people, and professors who are their profession first and a New Yorker, Brit, or Southerner second. They're as comfortable in New York City as they are in London or Paris or Sao Paulo or Hong Kong. Well, in the right neighborhoods in each. In their minds, staying put is a mistake. If you stay, you limit your career, you limit your wealth, and you limit your intellectual growth. They also don't fully understand the value of place because, like religion, it's hard to measure. What's the value of staying near the family that raised you or in the valley where you were born? Had I asked those in my hometown when I visited why they stayed, why they were still there, I would have gotten the answer I heard from Cairo to Amarillo to rural Ohio. They would have looked at me like I was crazy, then said, because it is my home. It's an answer that is obvious because there is value in home, but it isn't just the value of the house or the yard. It's the connections, networks, friends, family, congregation, the Little League team, the usuals at the hairdresser, regulars at the bar, the union hall, the crew at the vape store, the regulars at the half-price movie night, the guys for Tuesday night basketball. The front row doesn't fully get that because they don't see that value, that value. And like me, they moved before and they'll probably move again. We have broken our connections and built new ones. If we can do it, so can anyone else, we think. And then later you write, you're talking to someone uh, and you say, I ask him the question. I already know the answer to why have you stayed here? He shoots back without any pause. Too many ties here. And it's as good a place as you can find. Do you like it here? Hell, I was born here. Have to like it. It is home. And I think you really end a quote. I think, you know, you nailed something there that you know, I moved six or seven times before I was eight years old. My my high school years were spent outside of Boston and Lexington, Massachusetts, but we moved when I was a junior to Israel thinking we were going to stay there. My dad's company sent him there. We thought we were going to be there for a few years. That was just normal for me. I didn't think anything of moving. I didn't have a place that I would call home except for maybe Memphis where I was born but never really lived, where I had a lot of family. And I think that sense of home for people like me, often highly educated, it is a bit alien for us. And you really, um, you capture the, the problem I think some of us have, I've said many times on this program that the problem of poverty is luggage. You know, the people need to get out. And um, a lot of them don't want to. And that's hard for us to understand. Right. It was hard for me to understand. I mean, again, even though I come from a small town, we were the outsiders in our small town. My dad was um, a German who had escaped um, uh, Germany before the war. Um, he was a professor in a, in a town that didn't have um, any other professors or, or just a few others. Um, and so for me, moving was easy. It was never really my home, even though I had strong connections and, 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 and appreciate my, my town. But, um, so I did the, you know, I leaped from there to, to grad, to college, to grad school, to, to New York. And then when I was in New York, I, you know, was traveling all over the world. So, you know, I would have been a very different guest 20 years before what I would have basically said, just move, yeah. you know? Um, and, you know, I should have seen it because I, went home pretty regularly when my parents were alive um, and, and just seeing that this was what people wanted. Um, but, you know, you're blind to things you don't want to necessarily think about. Or, and it's not, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to come to realize. Um, but, you know, I, I think 
again, we just don't understand the value of place. And and one of the things that frustrates me is if, if you're on the left like I am, you're supposed to, in my mind at least, you're you're supposed to focus on 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 the working poor and do and 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 respect them as much as you respect yourself and their views and you know asking them to move is taking away one of the few pieces of capital they have or devaluing it um you know again it's something that's gifted to them at birth and so you're asking to kind of you're saying that that piece of capital um is is un, is has no value which is you know, very elitist. But I would also say, um, at a more pragmatic level, I can put my old Wall Street hat on and say, you're also asking people to sell an asset into probably all-time lows. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so you're asking them to take that luggage and, and sell it often, and in a market that might have crashed, right? Yeah. Or, or so that's 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 you know, you're asking them to cash out at a low. Um, so. Look, I think uh, I, I don't want to give the impression that a lot of people, you know, are, are that provincial in the sense. But you I mean there there are people in the, like you know you can go to one of these towns and a guy will have lived there all his life, but he'll also jump in his truck and go work for a month up in North Dakota if there's a job, right? And but he'll come back and he he won't move his family. Or a woman will, you know, I was in I was in Preston in a small town in, in Kentucky. Um, where I didn't see any black people except for one, and she was a nurse who had come from um, Cleveland to work in the hospital for six months and was staying in a hotel. You know, so pe- people do move for 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 temporary employment, but um, in general, there's a lot of value to place. So I, w- I want to share my. Uh, the tension in my views on this issue of place and, and economic change in particular, which is in the background. Um, so we allow uh, trade mostly in the United States, free trade. We also allow internal trade. We allow technological change, innovation that replaces workers with robots and machines and computers. And that leads to a steady rising standard of living for a lot of people, not every single person at any one moment, of course, but over generations. It's why we're multiple times better off materially than people lived 100 years ago. But that transition, of course, is hard on certain groups. It was hard on farmers when we innovated in the farm and changed the what size of farm was going to be successful, which meant small farmers basically couldn't persist anymore, couldn't pay their loans their kids couldn't then become farmers. There's all kinds of non-material, non-measurable effects of these changes. Um, and it, a factory closes, and the opportunities that are created when that factory closes are not in that town anymore. That's pretty obvious and visible. What's harder to see are the opportunities that are created elsewhere for the next generation. So what I'm going to give a negative view of your book story and then a positive view and then I want to let let you react. So my negative view, which would be in line with I would say the theme of the book, is that by let letting having in place economic policies that allow factories to close, move to Mexico or become more efficient and hire fewer people, become bigger elsewhere in another location and this town which used to be centered around the factory for people who don't have a lot of education to work at. So it's gone. And that means that the social 
ties that exist in this town start to crumble and tear and disappear. And then the drugs come and people have very hard time. That's the negative story. And your book's a portrait of that despair in the aftermath of some of these economic changes. The positive story would be, sure, the town does badly, but because we have more resources, because we've tried to be more effective and allow people to buy things that are less expensive because of trade or technology lowering the, the costs, new opportunities expand elsewhere. And we don't see those. They're happening outside the town. And we don't see the kids in that town who leave who realize this is not where opportunity are, is anymore. It's somewhere else. And it's much better elsewhere than it was before as a result of the economic change that we set in motion. And so when we visit the town, which is what you did, what we see are two things. The people who either can't pursue the opportunities elsewhere because they're too old, their training, their skills, their education can't set them on that path. Or the people who really love where they grew up, those social experiences you've been poetically and beautifully describing, so they stay. Um, and so how should I think about those two stories? I mean, I think they're both true. I don't think I don't think one's true and one's false. I think they're both true. But I think in, in policy circles, people, and because of the politics, people respond to that with, you know, policy proposals that are very, um, that are very different. So how do you think about those two stories? I think, I think they're both true as well. Um, I, I think the the issue, I guess I would say is, um, I, I don't have a good part of what I, I don't do in my book is I don't give policies because I, I, because of the ambiguity of what you just asked, basically, I don't know how to solve the issue. <laughs> um, what I would say is where I think I would differ from you in that description is the what has been lost. Two things. One is one. What has been lost is I think, you know, I used to say when I when I, when I kind of my, my my cartoon summary of how we how I think about free trade is kind of the, the world we moved into. We look at a spreadsheet. We say, okay, um, net net. Here's here's the winning here's a winning column, here's a losing column. Add them up. It's a positive. Let's do it, right? As long as it's positive, it's negative. Let's not do it. Uh, I think what I've been trying to say in my book is, you're not capturing all the losses, um, and I think what you're pushing back is you're not capturing all the gains either. I think to to my my point of you're not capturing all the losses. When that factory leaves and those jobs leave and those young kids who go off to college leave. It, it leaves a vacuum in the center um, where it's not just jobs that are lost, but it's families that are taken apart. It's, um, it's stability that is, is thrown out the window. It's um, communities that are emptied of resources and filling. And into that vacuum comes drugs and dysfunction and despair, which is why I think you see the, the and, and, and unhappiness. And it's why you see the spike in suicides, um, which is, you know, just in, in alone, alone is the statistics that give every, should give everybody pause. Oh, I agree. But I, I would say the other thing, the other thing I would mention is when I went to, when I, when I went to, um, it didn't make it into the book. I went to Lumberton, North Carolina 
which is the the poor is Robeson County, the poorest county in North Carolina. And I went there partly because a it was a poorest county, but b it's one of the most unique places in in the United States where it's it's about as diverse as you're going to get. It's one third African American, one third white, and one third Native American, the the Lumbee Indians, and they've lost a lot. And when I go to town, I go to the community college, and I went to the community college in Robeson. It was a summer, so the college was out of session, but the, but a magnet high school was just finishing up. And that magnet high school had taken the smartest, most talented kids um, in Robeson County, extracted them from the rest of the high school thing, and and given them – at the end, they graduated with a uh, junior college degree as well as a college degree, as well as a high school degree. And I sat with about 20 of these kids. And it was a diverse – it was all across the spectrum. It was – it was – Almost all working class kids from working class families, a third black, a third white, a third Native American. It's just wonderful, wonderful kids. And I to, to a person, none of them was going to come back. Oh yeah. And you know, I'm not faulting them. I was that kid. Yeah. I wish I would. I, I, and I, I am. You talk about the winners. Well, they have. <laughs> they are the ones who are going to win from this from this new calculation. Um. And good for them. You know, I can't – I don't want to I don't want to tell them they need to come back to Robeson County and, and, and do something they don't want to do. They want to go out and have a, a life that includes travel, what a life that includes – the universe. Yeah, and, you know, they're all wonderful kids. And – but I, however, know that had, had one, one, one-fifth of them come back to Robeson, they would have changed Robeson for the better. Um, but – so I don't know how you change that. <laughs> I don't think you need to have these 20 kids be forced, you know, be scolded or back into coming home. I just think the problem is we have this, this, the difference between those kids, the, the problem, the solution if it lies is the difference between these kids who leave and the difference between these kids who stay, the reward shouldn't be, the, the difference in reward shouldn't be as great. You know, it, you shouldn't be economically rewarded 25 times more if you leave than if you stay. I think that's part of the problem. I would also say that the sense of inevitability that we just we we just all tend to throw up our hands and say, well, we can't do anything about this. It's just, just the way the world goes. I'm not so sure that's entirely true. I think that we've generally accepted as a culture or emphasized um, economic growth as our primary motive and done anything and everything to promote it. One of the, one of the kind of way things I there's a small community near my home. I don't know if you ever heard of the Bruderhofs. Um, they're they're basically um, uh, anti-Baptist uh, Marxist. They are communal society. They're a, a commune that's built around the Bible. They were eject, They are um, kicked out of Nazi Germany and they resettled in the United States. In any case, the way they 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 have communal living. They don't own possessions, but the way they make their money is they have a factory. They make children's furniture and furniture for the handicapped. And I had visited the Bruderhof community because they live near me, and they invite anybody to come visit. And one of the things that was fascinating about their factory was they actually took technology out of the factory. They have a part of the factory where they manufacture that they had had automated, and they removed the, removed the automation so that the elder members of the community would have a role in the factory, which – I thought was a really interesting, you know, they, and they found that it gave a greater sense of health of the community as a whole because everybody had a role 
in production. I mean, I think we in many ways have green-lighted <laughs> change um, so that it, it goes forward at an immensely fast pace. And the, only, the other thing I would say is I think we think a lot about change. Change is good, um, which is, it is, but I don't think we often think about the pace of change that humans can only accept so much over so, such a short period of time and that – you know, the, the 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 first derivative of that change is it matters a lot, and it wouldn't be a great detriment. We might have a healthier country in aggregate if we slow down the pace of change to let things kind of catch up, to let the kind of communities catch up um, to that pace of change. Yeah, that's the challenge, and I and I don't. We're going to come back and talk about this issue of measurability and the emphasis on growth because I've come to agree with that view, even though I'm still a free market person. I do think our culture and our policies have taken a turn for the worse because of our focus on what is measurable. So, you know, I echo that theme in your book myself, and I'm very sympathetic to it. The challenge is, is you know, how to get there from here. Um, you know, it's one thing to say – you know, 3% growth, 4% growth, we don't need that. 2.6 would be great. But there isn't a dial. Uh, you can't just say, well, accept a little less growth and in return for more opportunity for people to react to it. And instead, we go sort of case by case and we say, for example, we could say we, we should ban autonomous vehicles. We shouldn't allow them to on the roads because they're going to put 3 million Four million, whatever it is, cab drivers and truck drivers out of work potentially, assuming we solve the technological problems. Let's say we do, and that's going to be very destructive. It's going to happen overnight, maybe very quickly. It's happening right now, maybe, and um, those people are going to have they're going to struggle to find work. And it's true that in the long run, they're going to turn out fine. Their kids will have better opportunity, which is my the upside of of my story as a, a free marketer. I agree with you that this, this the narrow calculus, well, if the benefits outweigh the cost, let's do it. That's an economics called Pareto efficiency, more or less. And I think that's immoral. It's, I, don't, I reject that utilitarian calculus. I don't think that's the reason to be in favor of economic freedom and, and allow economic change. I think there are human reasons, not just the net gain in monetary terms to, to what you can uh, – to the people in, within the borders. But you know, the, the idea that we can sort of have a – less free market system or a we have a little less change by dialing back some knob i think is a little bit of a it's a dangerous fantasy it's going to encourage people's ability to do some very uh, unpalatable things so i think the challenge is given that i'm on, not on the left but i'm sympathetic to this these costs what kind of ways are there to deal with it and and the unfortunately to my view and i suspect to yours the Standard view is, oh, we'll just give money for a while. And we had a guest, Jake, Jake Vigdor, on the program talking about the minimum wage where a political operative said, yeah, sure, there are a lot of, going to be a lot of unemployed people if we, because of the living wage in Seattle. But uh, it doesn't matter. They're going to be unemployed anyway soon because of the technology. So what's the difference? They're going to have to get a check anyway. So let's give it to them now. And I think that just shows a total lack of what gives people's lives meaning and makes their hearts sing and makes them feel important and dignified and lovely. And loved, and I think that whole mindset, which is just as prevalent on the left and the right, which shocks me when I the more I think about it, just not the way to get there from here. It's not the way to solve solves not the right word. It's not the way to cope with this pace of change. And I, 
I don't think we have a good answer, but I think a lot of the answers that are on the table now are, are desperately wrong. Yeah, I um, part of the reason I stay away from policy solutions um, is I don't know. I think the problems are too deep. Um, as I say, it's kind of like I think the core problem is not it's not just um, we've made everything about the ec economic. The only forms of meaning that are economic, and we've forgotten. Um, you know, we've become hyper utilitarian to use your language. Um, is that people want to feel at their core, people want to feel a, a valued member of something larger than themselves. And, you know, a, a free market based economy does that for maybe the top 5%. Because <laughs> I, I can tell you on Wall Street, nobody is happy with their pay, even if they get paid a lot. They always look at the person next to them and say, oh, they got a lot more than me. That's going to be a tough standard to overcome. Um, the people who are happy with their lot. Uh, you know, I, I like to quote the Talmud. It says, "You know, who's rich? The person that's happy with their lot." That's a rarer person. Um, that's right. But I think I think I, I guess I would answer your question in another way, which is I happen to believe that you have to do income in, in distribution for the short term because, I mean, I, I would I think it's morally right. And I think we argue too much about utility. You mentioned, you know, why do we always have to put things on a more utilitarian basis? I happen to think we we feel the need to always support every argument with data. When I think yep. a lot of the arguments are better just supported by, well, this is morally right. <laughs> that's that's my view on immigration. I I don't. I agree. It's just it's the morally right thing to do. End of story. Um, I don't need I don't need statistics about violence or whatever to support this. Rates, yeah. Um, but getting back to this question. But I feel like I feel that income, free health care is morally right. I think income distribution is morally right. However, if I were if I were a libertarian or free market person, and I was talking to bankers in a very self interest way, what I would tell them is, I'd put it in my economic, I'd put it in my math, in my finance terms. You guys need to buy an out the money put, meaning if you do not do something against your philosophy, against your free market philosophy, you're going to have a riot on your hands and you're going to die. <laughs> you know, not official, not, 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 you're not going to be killed, but you may, you're going to have, you're going to have a political environment that's going to overthrow you and replace you with something much worse. So you may not like, it may go against your ideology to do the following eight things, but in your own self-interest, you better do them because if you don't and things progress, continue to progress the way they do, that vacuum I talk about being there, that into that vacuum can come, can come um, ugly, ugly politics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I view that as kind of like – I agree with you that I don't know the solutions independent of the politics um, beyond I wish the world – in aggregate, focused less on material things, and we could think about non-material things and, and providing people meaning that way. But at a pragmatic level, if something doesn't happen soon, it's going to be ugly. So I disagree with you on a couple of counts there. Let me push back a little bit, which is that you know we do redistribute a non-zero amount of money in the United States. We do have a safety net. The countries that have more generous ones, I'm not sure they have a sustainable path. 
a world of free health care might be moral, but if it's lousy health care, we're not going to like it. And I know there are arguments that say, oh, it's just as good if it's free. I think that's complicated, but I don't. it's not our topic today. But I just want to suggest that the, the, quote, short-run solutions, which either side is pushing, I think are, are not going to solve this core problem very well. Certainly don't want people starving in the streets. Um, but this loss of meaning, this loss of connectedness, the loss of dignity, which is what your book's really about, is not solved through material means. And I don't, I don't think we fully, I don't think, I know we have not fully come to grips with the transformation of the American family, uh, the change of the, the, of the pace of economic change that you, that you emphasized a minute ago, which I think is important. And I think we're, we're going to have, we're going to struggle to figure it out. But that's the, that's what's on the table. I, I, I agree with that. I agree that everything I suggested is band-aids. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'll go, um, I will, um, I will. I will just. I will um, stand up for free healthcare. I just think it's um, the one thing I, t- I can tell. I, I, the few times political consultants has ever reached out to me based on the findings of my book, I say, look, uh, people. People. The biggest. The, the only thing I really hear about every day from people out there is, is healthcare, 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 healthcare. It's just. It's the political issue that if somebody quote solves it, they're going to get elected. But. Um, Going back to, I don't know how to change. I don't know how to fix anything. I, I, I mean, that's. I don't know how to do anything beyond band aids. The example I use is when I was a kid, the town I grew up in, or the town next to I grew up in, was a classic industrial town. It had two orange juice factories, um, and there was a family there that owned the orange juice factory, and or. I don't remember the sole owner or part owner of the orange juice factory, and they owned a lot of land. Um, we knew the family was well off, but you know, we went. To, I went to public high school with the kids, right? I ended up finding out that the family was somewhere in the Forbes 500 eventually, which I had no idea of. They didn't act like it. <laughs> they lived as part of the community. That is no longer the case. That's that you know. That's rare. That, and Warren Buffett is a rarity. Lives in you know the quote normal house. I don't know, but but the, 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 this family was part of the community at every level. Yeah. They didn't they didn't you know they didn't go to to Africa to have hunting trips. So, you know, they just were part of the family community. I don't know how you. I don't know how you you can't legislate that. <laughs> you know you can't through politics create a culture where the people who run the capital, the people who run the markets, who are involved in the markets, feel an obligation to the rest of the community or feel that, you know, value the employees in a way the more than the market does. I don't know how you enforce that. That just was kind of, it was considered loose behavior in the past and people did it less than they do it now. Um, you know, just so... I think a lot of it was, again, the people who, who ran the orange juice factory lived in the town. That orange juice factory was eventually bought by a Brazilian conglomerate and then moved away. So I think local ownership makes a big difference. Um, you know, I, I don't 
have a policy solution of how to change that. But I think I think the solution ultimately I, I think it's a mistake to look for a policy solution. I think that's you know that's where the light is, so that's where we look. Um, I think the way this gets solved is the way it unraveled. We're not going to put it back together. But the way it unraveled is is that to some extent is that social norms of what's acceptable and unacceptable changed. Um, to give your argument its best due. I think there's a lot of truth to that, and they can change again. Uh, People can be uh, ashamed of going to that safari in Africa as a winter break activity rather than proud of it. Uh, You can be ashamed owning a uh, $500,000 car uh, rather than not. Um, And I, I don't, we don't know how to create culture and norms, so it's you know I recently talked to Mary Hirschfeld about this in an episode about Aquinas and the market. So we're doing right now. You know, this is a very small step about what we think is admirable versus what is not so admirable, and I think it's not going to fix anything, but it maybe makes a difference. Right. I, I guess I would say where I differ from you, and where. I mean, where I differ from a lot of people on the on the libertarian right, and I'm not going to just pigeonhole you in that camp, is I think the centrality of the market, making the market central to everything, often in, I think it's natural. It's natural endpoint is kind of where we are, which is you know as a, as a trader for 30 years or 20 years. I kind of kind of ended up viewing markets as always ending up in kind of a winner take all um, direction if they aren't um, if they aren't uh, um, more carefully monitored. And I know that's very very <laughs> that's that's in the antithesis of your views in some ways. But I think this I think the the problem is we've put the market at the center of everything. And when you do that, that ends up eroding those norms we've talked about. But Chris, who's we? I mean, I, I I don't do that even, and I'm as free market as anybody. I think we I know. As a, we as a culture, I, I right, don't but mean. Where's to- it come from? Who 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 thinks that's a good idea? And where does it manifest itself? In fact, you know, there's so many places where we all agree that it shouldn't be come first. That it isn't the only thing, and, and yet somehow, I I think that's too easy. Uh, uh, a way to blame where we got to. I think it's so much more complicated. I think the death of the, I say the death of the family, like it's already dead. It's close. The, you but know, you don't think you don't think that some of that, the the death of that family is 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 when we when we view things only in the material, thinking in it's only in terms of markets. I mean, look. I don't. But go ahead. Make tell no, me why. I, 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 I guess, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. I don't know if I. Sh- I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here. Yeah, I, me I mean, too. I, I'm not. I, I don't think, have an answer. I, I think what. What frustrates me is, is um, I, I think you know I look I look back at how we put Wall Street central, and I, and I mean we meaning the elites in the sense that my party with Clinton basically sold out to the my party sold out to 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 to, to industry and, and and banking somewhere in the um, post 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 Reagan revolution, and I think when it did that. The sense of the utilitarian dominating everything, and then utilitarian um, given over to efficiency and, and GDP growth, 
kind of made made dominated policy for the next 30 20 25 years i don't think that had to happen i think if the democrats had stayed as um in opposition uh to big business um they might have it might have slowed the process down now the the, the other alternative is they might have kept losing and it would have actually sped it up <laughs> so you know but it wasn't a, right. it wasn't a it wasn't a Strategic calculation. It was basically, I think, the incentives on both parties are to coddle Wall Street. Um, and I, you know, my joke is, both parties like to give money to their friends. They just have different friends, but they have one friend in common, and that's Wall Street. I and think so that's they, very true. They both, unfortunately, take care of it, and I, it does have terrible costs. And I think it's been a credibly destructive uh, thirty, forty years of bailouts and and special breaks, and it's just it's. Horrible, and I <laughs> we're on the same page there. Uh, interestingly, um, but I think the, what what I wanted to suggest though on this this question of quote markets, um, you know, I don't think there's anything uh, inherently destructive that most Americans, almost all Americans, can have a cell phone. Almost all Americans can have inexpensive clothing. Almost all Americans have incredible access to food. These are changes that nobody planned, nobody put in motion through policy. They happen because we let them happen. And most of them have been good. Now, what you're chronicling is is the downside. And I think where I will criticize my free market side is saying my side pretends it doesn't even exist. My side pretends, yeah, everybody's better off. My side pretends, yeah, it's efficient. My side pretends, oh, well, they'll all find new jobs. The markets are dynamic. And your book is a is a um, reminder that it's not true. And I don't – so I don't want to minimize – not just that. I, I think what you've chronicled here is, is deeply important. And I think this is what – if you're a caring person and you don't just care about who wins elections or whether your side, your tribal side is triumphing in every four years, I think we need to think about these problems in a, in a different way – than just, well, they just need a tax break in that neighborhood, says the free market side. Or, well, they just need more welfare payments if you're on the interventionist side. I think that's – got to get out of that that box. I agree with that, and I would say that one of the things I said, one of the smart smart quips um, or um, one of my um, quips about four years ago on Twitter, what I said was when I was trying to poke, poke that kind of mentality was I said, you know, maybe – look. My dad was a historian. My brother's a historian. I recognize by his, by, by by historical standards, we're very fortunate. <laughs> um, but I always say, is like maybe people don't want two iPhones. Maybe they want one iPhone and three friends. You know. So I think we tend to look at all these problems as where I think my book has resonated on the right, even though I'm a leftist, is the part you're getting to that I, I'm kind of I'm deflecting, which is the book is a lot about. It's not just a material gap that pe- people are experiencing. It's a spiritual gap. You know, there, there's there's a there's a whole avoid there that's not just about things. And yep. as you can say, as you said, it's pretty clear it's not about things. People have more things now than ever. It's about, and so that's kind of why one of the things I've always said is one of my frustrations with the left and right in this world, both Marxists and capitalists, is they're two sides of the same coin. Where the, that coin is the material. That's all they think about. One is how do we do? How do we how do we have more material stuff? And the other is how do we you know how do we 
redistribute the material stuff we have. And when I think, again, this is why I don't offer policy solutions in my book is like, because it's so much bigger than that. The problem is not, is that if that's the only coin, that's the only, that's the only axis we're thinking about. We're not thinking about all the other axes that are orthogonal, the other axes of meaning that are orthogonal to that faith, place, identity, those things value people. And I think that's um, where a lot of the loss is centered that, that because we only think about things, we've devalued the, the spiritual. And I don't mean that only in religious Man. sense um, side of the, the equation. Intangible. The intangible, there you go. And I think that's where the solution is, but I don't know. And I, this is where I agree with you. There's no policy to get there. <laughs> you know? we'll, get there we'll get there on our own because that's what we do, I hope. Um, and I, you'll like this line. I wrote an essay recently on inequality, and I said, um, you know, there's no, there's no uh, variable for dignity in the data set, so we just ignore dignity. And I think, wow, there you go. <laughs> your title, the title of your book, dignity, is a very appropriate. You could have called it a lot of different things. That's a beautiful title because. It's really what it's about at the at the root that the people you're talking to and photographing and I we didn't tell mention this but they're they're not candid photographs they're really beautifully posed portraitures of, of people in these neighborhoods they're extraordinary they took with their permission and their pride and and dignity in tough situations but we don't have that variable so we tend to ignore it and so the left and the right focus on the the monetary and the material and th- that we fight about inequality. And how important it is and how to, quote, fix it when we ought to be thinking about dignity is, I think, the central issue of the, of our, the next, next few years in our, in our culture and our politics. But I want to I close with a chapter of your book that we haven't talked about yet, which you've taken us to naturally, which is uh, religion. You spent your Sundays in these, on these tours in small churches in very uh, tough neighborhoods. Uh, you know, I, I, you write beautifully, and I have this image. I, it almost makes me uh, sweat just thinking about the folding chairs and the fans, unair conditioned, and nothing fancy about these institutions. They're storefronts, they're beat up buildings. There's a lot of photographs of them in the book. Talk about what you saw in those churches and how it changed you. Right. I mean, the quip I use is I. I walked into the Bronx, a uh, vegetarian atheist. <laughs> now I'm a meat-eating um, agnostic um, who who goes to church pretty regularly. Um, and what do your physics buddies think of them? Exactly. What would they think of them? They're, 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 again, they they I think they think where I think they try to get where I'm coming from, but but it's not clear. the The way I think about faith initially was as I put my, I I had to put my scientific hat on, which is I was seeing in these communities, like I saw McDonald's being used one of the few places that functioned and provided people a space with the churches. And so it wasn't just a space. It provided them, uh, provided them dignity actually. And not only that, but they accepted them on their terms. You could, there was no barrier to entry. You could just walk in and you found people who were like you. The secular world, the cold secular world I'm part of, just provides you dreary institutions that you have to 
work through like a maze and that are dehumanizing and have no soul. So I couldn't deny initially the value of religion just just simply as a as utilitarian value. And so, you know, that's where I shifted initially. And then as I spent more and more time, I realized it wasn't just, you know, I, this is where I am now is it's just, it's pretty arrogant of me to say it simply as a utilitarian thing because it's, it's more than that. Maybe, maybe it, people are not using them just for utilitarian purposes, but because their situation provides them with an opportunity to understand things better than I understand them. The The way I think about it is I always think about mathematically, you know, often you learn about a problem. If you want to understand a problem, you push it to its boundary condition and things become more clear at the boundary conditions. And in many ways, what I was seeing was people at their boundary conditions. And, in that, and here, faith was essential. And so maybe... It wasn't just utilitarian. Maybe what they were seeing was faith as as the truth. And, he, and it was my situation and our elite being an elite who had everything under control, who was removed from the evidence for faith. So I started realizing that, you know, there was a lot more going on than I had been willing to admit, and it goes back a little bit to that same question we were talking about earlier about you kind of dismiss it because you can't measure it. You certainly can't measure faith, in my opinion, so we dismiss it entirely, but that I think we're very wrong to do that. It reminds me of the episode we had with Ian McGilchrist talking about left side, right side of the brain ways of perceiving the world. and. In his view, one side, um, the left side is very analytical, narrow, narrative-based, easily finds things to fit the narrative. The right side of the brain is more holistic, humble, less confident, um, less focused. And um, your book, to my reading, to some extent, is an application of that, that coming from the physics Wall Street background that you grew up in and were an adult in for most of your life, you had closed off, you know, he used the example of the bird looking with one eye very carefully at the seed to make sure that you don't pick up a pebble with the seed. With the other eye, which connected to the opposite side of the brain, you're looking for predators, the whole picture is is available to you. And so when you get trained in physics and Wall Street, kind of focused on the seed. (laughs) Uh, and you're now a little bit more open to the wider range of stuff, not just predators, but other stuff. It's really, it's it's incredible uh, honesty. It's brave to write it on your part. You know, I mean, I think um, the, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just, like I said, I think the sitting behind a wall of computers Building mathematical models is fun. Believe me, I did it. <laughs> and I still think that way many times for 40 years. But it's also, I think, far more narrow-minded than we who do it like to admit. Um, you know, I, 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 also, I, I know 
the, I guess the way I would I, I frame it to my my science friends is like, look, I I got a PhD in physics. I I understand the Big Bang as well as you know I think a lot of people do. I understand the theory. It's a small uh, group. When you say a lot uh, of people, you mean of the people who understand it. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, it's been 20 years, but I, you know, I, I, I can pick up a book and figure it out um, and remember it. But the, the point being is um, I say to them, I say, look, science is great at building bridges. It's not so clear to me it's good at building meaningful lives. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the metaphysical answers that come from science are not any – more any deeper in my mind than the answers that came before it. Um, it's just put, it's just a big metaphor at some level, a mathematical metaphor. Um, but uh, I think there's a lot to be said for. Uh, I wish there was a lot more humility within the scientific community for what we can't know and what we will never know, and 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 understanding that. And I think the people who are living on the streets, who are addicts, who've been through a lot, not only understand that we're all sinners and we're all fallible and we need to, we need to embrace the concept of forgiveness, but also that there are just things just too big to understand and that we may never understand and that we really don't have this all under control. And accepting that is really hard for a scientist to do because we are trained to think with just enough time and enough smarts and enough money, we can figure it out. You become a little more skeptical about that. Oh, definitely. I think I think there. I would go so far as to say I'm not so. I'm sure you know. I get a little more philosophical, but I don't think I think there are some things that we may just have to accept. We'll never figure out. Wanna- and in that in that sense, that's where the role of faith is. So you talked about that in the book um, and and just now. I'm curious, let's close with you if you want to say anything about other ways that this experience transformed you. It's it's said, you know, some people after 20 years on Wall Street get a really good therapist and are already going to one. Uh, You took a very unusual road of therapeutic treatment that I'm sure changed you in lots of ways. Uh, there are other ways you haven't talked about today that, that this book transformed you. And uh, do you have any idea of what you're going to do next with your life? Um, I'm given, also, that, given that new perspective, if I'm right, that you have one. Uh, the the new perspective is effectively, I mean, to put it in um, in kind of PowerPoint presentation form, data bad Talking to people, good. <laughs> um, so the, the, qual- the qualitative over the quantitative, um, but it also reinforces the view I had before to some degree. But now I really, truly believe in this. Before you pass judgment on anybody, or especially if you pass judgment on a group, walk a mile in their shoes, or at least walk with them a mile in their shoes. Um, you know, I think. We've kind of become, I don't want to use a buzzword, a cliche that sounds very political, but we've kind of the secular elite has kind of lost touch with so much. Um, um, It's not because of bad intentions in my view. I don't want to say that um, it's just, they're very well intended. That's the the frustrating thing is 
they have the best intentions in mind. Um, but I think that they've become, um, we, I put myself on that camp, have become so detached from the people we claim to be advocating for. Um, how has it changed me in different ways? Is I mean, it's it's made it harder to go to New York City and hang out on Wall Street. It just feels very foreign. Um, it feels like um, it's just so it's so it just feels so removed from what you know. And so, and in that case, it's very frustrating because uh, it's it's unfair to the people who are working as bankers now to feel kind of detached and angry at them at some level. It's not their fault. You know, they're, they're good people. Um, I just feel like I just want to like, shake them and say, you know, <laughs> there's this whole part of the country that you guys aren't seeing. Um, in terms of next projects, I mean, I, the place I feel like I'm most uncomfortable intellectually is, is that what we were talking about at the end about faith versus science. And so consequently that's where I kind of want to go next um, to spend some time in a small community, kind of just documenting different congregations, um, and 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 not just not just spending a week or two, but spending six or seven months and trying to understand better the role of faith um, in in our society. My desk, my guest today has been Chris Arnotti. His book is Dignity. And I think it's going to shake a few of those bankers up if they um, take a look at it and the rest of us. Chris, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much for having me again. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.